I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Mary Brooks. Mary is a resident fellow for cybersecurity and emerging threats at R Street Institute. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thank you both for inviting me to join you today. What got you into foreign policy, national security, and cyber in the first place? It's a funny question, actually, because it's always been what I knew I wanted to work in. I'm originally from Western Montana, so not a lot of opportunities to pursue foreign policy and national security work there. But both of my parents are veterans of the Army. They actually met in the Gulf War. As a child, I would study maps, learn foreign languages for fun, and I used my airline miles to buy copies of foreign policy magazines in middle school. So this was kind of always going to be the path forward for me. So Mary, you focus primarily on forecasting. First, can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in intersections of forecasting and foreign policy, and then also what it means to be looking at forecasting and foreign policy? This is one of the projects that I've um, had the good fortune to do over the last year working at a think tank in D.C. In many ways, working at a think tank is kind of the ultimate sandbox. You have the opportunity to really knock on doors that you wouldn't have the chance to do in industry or in the government, simply because of a lack of time and resources. And so what happened in in this case was my co-author on some of my research, um, Paul Rosenzweig and I, were fundamentally interested in the idea of how do you make better policy in general, and in particular, how do you make better cybersecurity and technology policy? And so one of the things that we ended up turning to was a prediction market. Just very broadly, um, prediction markets are markets that let people commodify event futures. You get to bet on what you think is going to happen in the future. And in many cases, if you're right, you make money. This might sound a little crazy when applied to politics or geopolitics, but we use this technique in other arenas. Think about sports betting or horse racing opportunities where you get to predict what you think will happen, put down money, and if you get it right, win sometimes a substantial amount. So the question for us was, can you take this really interesting technique and use it for politics and policymaking? And I'm going to give an example because sometimes that's just easier. Right now, one of the questions in D.C. on everyone's mind is, does Donald Trump run for the presidency in 2024? And there's a couple of ways you can kind of try to predict about whether or not this is going to happen, right? You can call in a focus group, you can launch a poll, you can use predictive modeling online and kind of try to guess out and suss out what will happen. But what you can also use is a prediction market. You can gather a great number of people, incentivize them to say what they truly think because there's a monetary incentive and see what they come up with. And so in this case, if a contract or a bet were worth a dollar, and you thought it was a high likelihood that Donald Trump were going to win, let's just say that contracts in this hypothetical market are worth a dollar. If there seems to be a 70% likelihood that Donald Trump will win, the contracts will be 70 cents for the yes vote and 30 for the no vote. If you believe that it's likely that he won't win, you're probably going to want to stock up on that 30 cent vote because as it becomes more or less likely that he will or won't do something, the price of the contract will approach a dollar. And so if you bet on 30, you could actually win up to 70 cents by the end. Does it work? 
That's the golden question. And actually, about 20 years ago, DARPA set out to figure out just that. They created something called a policy analysis market. And it was mostly internal, but word of it leaked to Congress. And Congress got really upset. They said that in this case, the analysts were betting on violence in the Middle East and stability in the Middle East. So they were afraid that this was a terrorist market, basically, that you were betting on whether or not people would be killed in terrorist attacks. That wasn't quite right, but it still killed the program. However, behind the scenes, a lot more projects have been operating out of the intelligence community and out of some of the more innovative government agencies. Because this question of can we get to better answers, can we get to more accurate forecasts, is kind of the hope that springs eternal. And I would say my answer is sometimes. What these prediction markets do is they enable you to bring people together and to say what they truly think. If you're just asking a couple subject matter experts in DC what they think is going to happen, you're going to get the opinion of a few people, maybe steeped in the logic of what is going on and maybe a little bit less qualified. But if you reach into a broader pool of people and you say, you're going to win some money if you're correct, tell us what you really think is going to happen. The hope is that information will kind of rise to the surface. You'll be able to aggregate that knowledge and have a better sense of what's going on and what's going to happen. When you have that better sense, you can make decisions. And the government uses this in other ways as well. Think about tabletop exercises. Think about wargaming. It's all about trying to say what is going to happen and can we prepare for it in advance? Can we allocate the resources we need now so that we're not caught flat-footed later? Prediction markets are obviously relying on the wisdom of crowds. Do you have a sense for whether or not they are more accurate or more effective than, say, scraping a ton of data from different open source resources and then using, say, machine learning to try to predict events that way? Like relative to other forms of forecasting, I mean, you mentioned there's polling, there's, I mean, I don't know if that counts as forecasting or not, but where does this sort of stack up? Or is it, is the jury still out? Is it too early to tell? I would have to say there are circumstances in which one tool or the other would be more or less effective, right? You can think about when you've got a lot of information that you can feed into a computer, let's just say it's, the data is clean and ready to be digitally analyzed. Well, then you may want to go with that. When you're thinking about events in the real world, though, they're a little bit more unpredictable. And so what we've tried to do, and actually we have started our own version of kind of a beta prediction market on metaculus.com, what we've tried to do is break it into three categories. We've said, okay, what are the geopolitical things that you can predict or not predict, which seem to be very hard for computers to figure out? What are the industry-wide patterns that we can figure out who will invest more or less money in a given issue? And then three, what are the technical things that we can expect to see? For example, what would be the long-term cost of the log4j vulnerability? What will be the most expensive ransomware attack this year? Things like that. So it is just one tool and you choose to use it, an arrow in the quiver, if you will, for the right moment to, to, to predict what's going to happen. So does it matter who's betting on these things? So like, for instance, if I'm betting on what's going to happen in Central Asia, I might have a certain level of expertise, but then if we go to South America, then I'm in a whole different area code. So how do you think about like who you invite to these things? Is it supposed to be experts or do experts heard too much and get things wrong? In all, the jury is still out on that question. 
However, there is evidence that you don't actually need to be a subject matter expert in order to do well in a prediction market. You need to be good at probabilistic thinking. Back in 2014, IARPA ran a competition to figure out who could use crowd forecasting and prediction markets. Prediction markets are a version of crowd forecasting to come up with the most accurate results. And the project that won, Good Judgment Open, found that what you really needed were people who were good at parsing through logic, thinking about things probabilistically, looking at statistics, and making decisions based on that. Essentially, they found that if you had super forecasters, just people who seemed really, really good at predicting things, they in many cases were better than subject matter experts. Part of the reason that I can't fully answer your question, though, is because what we're doing with cybersecurity online in a public market may be kind of a carve out on that. And the reason I say that is we did ask one question about whether or not federal executive civilian agencies in the U.S. government would get a passing or failing grade on their FITARA scores. No one knew the answer to that. That one might be just a little too wonky for your average person to fully be able to parse and evaluate. So in that case, there may be a limit on the technicality of it. That may be resolved by pushing it to a more technical group of experts or simply incentivizing them more with higher sums than we were able to raise for our beta market. But yeah, the, yeah, the kind of the jury is still out on that. So you use the term super forecaster, which I'm a little bit familiar with, but I don't actually have a clear sense of like, what is there a threshold? What makes somebody a super forecaster? And also, can somebody learn to become one? Can they train to become one? Or is it either you're kind of born with the skill or you're not? So the super forecaster is a term developed by Philip Tetlock of the Good Judgment Open Project. I believe he's currently a professor um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And what his research found was that people could get better. They could get trained. They could become these super forecasters who were hyper accurate over time. And that is, in essence, the value to the U.S. government and to the intelligence community and to policymakers. Because the better that you can predict what is going to happen in the future, the better able you are today, right now, to start moving resources in the right direction. So I'll give an example. If 10 to 15 years ago, experts in the field had looked at the way that semiconductor manufacturing was starting to steadily move out of the United States, and they had said, hey, we're deeply concerned about this. We know that we retain the intellectual property here. We know we retain the designs and that we you know, are unparalleled in our research and development capabilities. But the manufacturing skill is moving elsewhere, and in particular to Taiwan. And what we're also noticing is that our relationship with China is steadily becoming more antagonistic. Those would be the warning signs, if you will, that something might need to change, that investments may need to be re rejiggered or reoriented, and that policymakers would want to pay attention. If you'd been able to do that, then instead of having the Bipartisan Innovation Act now, in which we're trying to spend $50 billion to retroactively kind of jumpstart American manufacturing and semiconductors, we could have done this earlier. Why is the government traditionally so bad at forecasting? Like if we know that forecasting is so important, then why in the entirety of my six years in undergrad and grad school did I never talk about how to be a better forecaster on foreign policy issues? Forecasting is hard and predicting the future is hard. 
and we're never going to get it 100% right. Back in my undergraduate education, we were talking about, could you get rid of tanks? Could you get rid of conventional weapons? Maybe this was an era of only gray zone warfare or only, you know, cyber power. Obviously, the view looks really, really different starting in February of 2022. And so this is a really, really hard area to predict. But with policymakers stuck in kind of a bubble in D.C., it's difficult to know whether information is truly getting there. How would you incentivize people to get into prediction markets or forecasting, get the super forecasters from across the country to D.C. if they're not already in the IC or already plugged in? Prediction markets and crowd forecasting have different incentives, whether you're an individual looking to participate in them or a government agency looking to benefit from the information. If you're thinking about yourself as an individual, your incentive is to be accurate or to make money. And so what's really interesting is there's a new prediction market operating out of California, and it's called Calshi. What they're doing is creating a true asset class, basically allowing people to bet on the future and to win more than a million dollars if they're correct. You know, that's the, the capacity for the bet. Whereas for the government, they're more interested in the information. So really, from a policymaker's perspective, and for those who are designing prediction markets that are designed for policymakers to use, the question is, how do you get the best information? And part of that is, how do you incentivize people to play? And if you have a prediction market, you can win a lot of money, and that, the incentive is already there, and it's handled for you. But only some prediction markets are legal. For example, Calshi operates under um, an agreement with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. They are legally um, one of the decentralized markets that is able to operate. There are other prediction markets in this country. They operate under the CFTC, the the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, as a designated contract market. But there are a number of other markets that claim to be decentralized, and the CFTC has, in some cases, gone after them because in many states and federally, this type of betting is not legal. So what do you do? You focus on the incentivization of people for research purposes. So in this case, what you can do is focus on the ones that are designed to pull out information, because those are the ones that are generally going to be really useful for policymakers. If you're a policymaker and you are trying to decide what industry needs money, you might be able to look more broadly across the system and say, well, which industries are increasingly the victim of ransomware attacks? When you're looking at new regulations for cryptocurrency, you might be able to ask, what are the biggest threats in the space? And by using and aggregating this information from, yes, subject matter experts in DC, but also subject matter experts across the country and just interested individuals who care about this and suddenly have a platform to to share their ideas, the hope is that you can get that better information for those policymakers. It's a version of of evidence-based policymaking, but Rather than looking retroactively, it looks proactively. You mentioned earlier that there was some backlash to the original DARPA program because there was a sense that people were betting on atrocities, right? On the possibility of a terrorist attack or something like that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not there are areas of forecasting that are particularly tricky ethically or are problematic when it ventures into some of these realms around protecting things like mass shootings or genocide, et cetera, and how forecasting should 
accommodate or address some of those challenges? And are there certain are there certain subjects that that you think are just totally off limits? The most difficult part of a crowd forecasting operation is coming up with the right questions. In order to be able to ask a question at all of a crowd forecasting platform, it has to fulfill a couple key requirements. It has to be one that results in a yes or no answer. It can't result in a kind of because then you can't actually adjudicate it at the end. It has to be time delineated. You can't just say, will something happen and never give an end date because you don't know when to cut it off. You have to have mutually unambiguous alternatives. So there are already a number of questions in cybersecurity and technology related issues that you can't ask at all anyways. The information will perhaps never be public because it's an an offensive operation associated with cyber command or or the DOD. You you may actually write a question and, and try to answer it, but find yourself confronted with a third outcome that you never wrote into the question. A good example of this actually is if you remember the hack against the Office of Personnel Management in 2015. If you'd asked at the beginning, will the Chinese government target American systems in 2015, and you'd set the question to resolve by the end of the year, you wouldn't actually have been able to say, yes, yes, it was the Chinese. Yes, this happened. Because actually, no one admitted it was the Chinese until 2018, until the Trump administration. So there's a lot of kind of artificiality of making these questions anyways, and it does make it a bit difficult. But the questions you wouldn't want to ask would be the ones that would create perverse incentives. The classic example is, will world leader X remain in power next year? If you don't craft that question very, very carefully, you've just created an assassination market, right? Where you have every, if you're betting against it, you have an incentive to maybe take action, take matters into your own hands. So how is this different than the free market generally? So I just think about the stock market and especially whether it's ExxonMobil who deals with climate change, some firms that are especially invested in, let's say, Russia pre-February 2022, you have to bake those things in anyway. You have to bake in the chance that climate change happens. You have to bake in the chance that your billion-dollar investment in Russian oil and gas falls through. What makes prediction markets more helpful in sort of thinking about the geopolitical outcomes than like looking at the stock market for select companies or select risk factors. So at its heart, prediction markets take advantage of the same mechanisms that the stock market does. The more popular something is in the real world, in the stock market, the higher the stock, the share price is going to be. In the prediction market, the more expected the outcome is, the more people are going to flock to that and the more the purchase price will reflect that. One of the main differences is in the financial market, you buy a share in a company and then that's just the share. You own the share or part of the share and the value goes up or down. In the prediction market, you buy a contract and you buy, you know, it, it works based on like percentages rather than that. So that they do rely kind of on the same crowd using mechanisms. How much better are prediction markets at doing the geopolitics thing? when we already have the largest prediction market available for these geopolitical risks when it comes to large companies, large international companies? I don't fully know the answer to that. But what I can say are a couple points. 
One is that with a prediction market, you're not reinventing the trading mechanism itself. You are selecting new types of questions that you want to have answered. And you are incentivizing people to answer them based on what they truly believe will happen, not what they have a financial stake necessarily in having happen. When there are blind spots in populations, there will be blind spots in the results that are, you know, come up with. The hope of a prediction market is to increase the amount of voices that are being put into the system, increase the number of experts, that is to say, not necessarily subject matter experts, but good forecasting experts that are in the system so that the bias and the noise and the interference is zeroed out. And what you're left with, your signal, is a truer representation of what people feel to be the risk. So with if you were trying to ask something about Russia and Russian risk factors, you wouldn't just say, will Russia be a risk you know, later on? Let's not worry about quantifying it. Just should we you know, invest in them or not? That's a decision. That is it. That's an outcome decision. That is the decision of shareholders or CEOs. What you can ask, and I don't think that anyone would have gotten this one right, is will Russia invade Ukraine in February 2022? Had anyone predicted that in advance, you could see that CEOs and, and shareholders alike would have acted very differently. They probably would not have invested nearly as much um, in opening up the country, in investing, in putting Western technologies and Western factories on Russian soil. They definitely would have protested harder about Germany becoming reliant on Russia. So this is a way of kind of trying to quantify that risk. It doesn't say whether or not that risk exists at all, and it doesn't perfectly quantify it. But you can ask very specific questions to try to get to your desired kind of risk analysis outcome. I would also guess that, Grant, even if the public markets are taking into account a certain amount of risk and that's being priced into stock prices and so forth, at the like company level, nobody's ever making like a binary decision as Mary said, they're kind of thinking like, should we operate in Russia? And here are all the kind of pros and cons that go into that decision. And in a way, at least my understanding of some of these prediction markets is like, it's a way of isolating the hyper-specific question and removing it from all the other factors that might influence a business decision. No, sure. I, I think that's, I think based on what Mary was, was just saying, that's right. There are just too many inputs into business decisions and it's hard to isolate purely the, you know, will Russia invade Ukraine? I mean, unless you're like selling flak jackets in Kiev, like you're, you're not making decisions based on stuff like that. But I guess what I want to ask Mary is prediction markets seem great and hindsight, but how do you use them ahead of time? How, if, I, if I'm adjudicating questions, so if I said, you know, will Russia invade Ukraine in 2022, and I can only adjudicate that after Russia already invades, how useful is that to me? How do you actually make this usable by the policymaker or the, the business leader? If you're asking, will Russia invade Ukraine in 2022? Let's say you were asking this a year ago. You would probably had people all over the spectrum. Some people would have said yes, and some people would have said no. 
But unlike a pool, you get to keep asking the same question. As long as the question remains open in the prediction market, you can continue to refine and change your your guess or, or your prediction, if you will. So the expectation is the closer you get to the cutoff date, the more likely people are to coalesce around a single answer. If you had asked whether or not Russia would invade in, in 2022, you might have cut off the question, you know, January 15th of 2022. At that point, people would have likely thought that it was a lot more likely than they would have thought the previous year. And you would have been able to actually chart the likelihood of that going up and down and up and down with Russian provocations. You would have been able to ask the question of Russia experts, cyber experts, people on the front lines of helping the Ukrainians bolster their cyber defenses. You would have been able to ask it of people watching commodities futures, including in things like wheat fluctuate and increasingly getting closer to a consensus of what would or would not happen. Prediction markets failed to predict that Trump would win in 2016. But then again, so did pretty much everyone else. So this isn't a one-stop shop. This is not a fix-it-all you know, panacea. But what this is, is it's another tool of, of looking forward. And what I really want to make sure that we do here is not to get bogged down in the details. What makes this so interesting is that traditionally, policymakers have had to work with tools that are less innovative than this. This is the kind of thing that you would expect out of the intelligence community. This is the kind of thing you would expect out of DARPA. This is less the kind of thing that you would expect people to look into if they're working in the executive branch or in Congress or in the network of kind of linkage institutions around the city. So really what this is, it fits into the broader question of how can we innovate policy? How can we try to come up with better, clearer ways of doing things? Because in so many other areas, in, in business, in education, in science, we are trying to come up with systems of making better decisions, of improving, of refining, of comparing outcomes. And what's so interesting about prediction markets is, is not even whether or not you know, they work on a given moment or they don't work on a given moment. Some, they work more or less in certain situations. And there's a tremendous amount of really good research being done, um, mostly at the university level, um, and then sometimes amongst private companies who make these on a bespoke basis. But really what this comes down to is, can we use empirical data-driven methods and apply them into the policy world, which traditionally hasn't really been able to take advantage of those things? I think it's a really good point that regardless of whether or not there's efficacy in the individual instance, it's about a culture of experimentation and innovation and, and trying new things. So if you were able to restructure the government to better take advantage of prediction markets and forecasting, what would you do? Like, it sounds like the concern is that a lot of policymakers maybe have this tool at their disposal, but aren't taking advantage of it. So where would you like to see these types of tools be better utilized? Look, there's no way that Senator A is going to be routinely checking online prediction markets, uh, you know, come into the office in the morning, grab a coffee, grab the New York Times, and then go check what some rando from across the country thinks about a certain policy decision. The inputs will have to go through the traditional sources that policymakers already rely on. Think about how information generally filters into the government. And we could focus on, in particular, the, on Congress, on the Hill. They get information from constituents. They get information from lobbyists, 
activists, advocates. They get it from researchers on the Hill. They get it from journalists. So really what you're trying to do is improve the ecosystem as a whole. And you're trying to spread the inputs. You're trying to say, okay, here are these options. Here are these opportunities. And here are how we can integrate these into the regular policymaking process. They're not going to be able to tell you if policy A or policy B will work. But what they can tell you is if policy A relies on China not invading Taiwan, and 90% of this community thinks that China will invade Taiwan, you've maybe got a problem on your hands. So really where this can come in useful is flagging things that you wouldn't otherwise expect, those black swan events or those things that, you know, people wouldn't usually take into consideration. All right. So I know the Commodity Futures Trading Commission regulates this stuff, but where can we get it on the action? If you want to dabble, you can go to the Iowa Electronics Market. It's one of the oldest, and it operates under a no-action letter by the CFTC, which means we know you're doing this for research purposes. We're going to allow you to continue fly high Iowa. So you can go there. If you've got more money to spend and you want to go much broader than politics and geopolitics, you can head over to Kalshi's website and spend a lot more money there. If you're interested in betting on cyber, on technology, on kind of the war in Ukraine, which is an interesting kind of side note all of its own, you can head over to metaculus.com, which is the platform we're using to run our beta market. Great. So with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we've been following in the news, either political or cultural. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I have been following the national lifeguard shortage that is plaguing our country. It is thought to be mostly because of a combination of the pandemic and the cancellation of certain visa programs. But as a result, the number of lifeguards that are working this summer is is way down. And in New York City, it's about 50% of the number of lifeguards that the city had last year. And this is top of mind for me because I am a huge fan of the New York City public pools. I spent some time this past weekend at my public community pool in Brooklyn. It's fantastic. It's very family-oriented. And best of all, it's free. And so I felt very grateful that there were lifeguards at my local pool this weekend, but uh, I'm keeping an eye on this national lifeguard shortage because it does have the potential to shut down a number of public pools, both in New York and in other parts of the country. Mary, what are you following this week? What of my coping mechanisms when I can't read horrible news going on in the world anymore is actually to dive into articles on early earth and early human history, geology, paleontology. And what's so interesting about this space, particularly early human history, is that a lot of the discoveries, a lot of what we know about early human species come out of Russia. I think it's partly the cold, which preserves human and organic remains, partly the remoteness. A lot of it is undisturbed and partly Russia is just very big. Uh, so there's just a lot of space to find, to find early discoveries in. And in particular, the Denise events. I have been a lot of Denisovan remains have been discovered in Russia. It's an early human species, which we know to have existed around the same time as its more popular cousins, the Neanderthals. Neanderthals were in Europe, Denisovans were in Asia. We hear a lot less about them, but most of what we know um, has been discovered in Russia and in, in particularly northern Russia. Cool thing about that is modern humans, Homo sapiens, we actually 
many of us have traces of both Neanderthal and Denisovan ancestry, which tells us that these extinct species um, of our human ancestors interbred. And of course, where I'm getting to with this is the war. So with the sanctions on Russia, with the conflict there, a lot of scientific collaboration is on hold. So collaboration with individual Russian scientists isn't banned, but given kind of the pushback, given the pariah status of Russia right now, a lot of Western scientists and Russian scientists have just kind of been cut off from each other. Obviously, a, a pause in scientific research is not that much in the grand scheme of things, especially with, with what's happening on the ground in Russia and excuse me, in Ukraine and just the horrible tragedy of it all. Um, but it is worth noting for this, just how much we rely on globalization for scientific collaboration and research um, and whether or not its future is kind of in jeopardy as the world seems to bifurcate more, even in these very, very non-political issues. This week, I wanted to talk about the crisis in Sri Lanka. Since our episode with Akhil Berry weeks ago, the crisis has only gotten worse. This weekend, protesters stormed the houses of the prime minister and president, demanding their resignations. The president has offered his resignation, though not through official channels yet, and the opposition cannot seem to come up with a mutually agreeable leader. While the situation there is beyond tragic, what may be worse is that this is just the first of what could be a number of economic and political collapses around the world. It's easy to forget that inflation does not just hit our communities, but it's an issue globally. With food and fuel prices skyrocketing, this means extreme instability in countries which were shaky when money was cheap to borrow and food and fuel were plentiful. It's unclear how the U.S. or major international organizations would handle a crisis in multiple corners of the world at once, but I fear we're about to find out. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Mary at Mary underscore K underscore Brooks. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Rajapaksa and Erdogan School of Economic Magical Thinking. Do you think you're smarter than international economic organizations and Nobel Prize winners? Do you think the rules of macroeconomics don't apply to you? Then apply to be the latest wannabe autocrat at the Rajapaksa and Erdogan School of Economic Magical Thinking. And join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.